Welcome to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance, where top-level COOs share their insights, tactics, and strategies that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Andrew Chang is the COO of Paxos. He's over a decade of operational experience at technology companies and startups and is a partner at seed fund Liberty City Ventures. Before joining Paxos, Andrew served as a lead strategic partner, development manager at Google, working in business development for display and products. Prior to that, he was COO of Condition One and an associate at Techstars New York. He also has experience managing delivery at WPP-owned Kantar Video and innovation in research, analytics, and digital media at 360i, a digital marketing agency. Andrew has expertise in creating strong communication frameworks and identifying how to most effectively unlock value across the whole company. Andrew earned his MBA from New York University's Leonard N. Stern School of Business and has a BS in operations and technology management from Boston College. Dude, you're a smart guy. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. I wouldn't actually ever say that. My parents wouldn't say that either. (laughs) Nice. Well, welcome welcome to the Second Command podcast. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thank you. So, um, so... Why don't you just start by telling us a little bit about Paxos so we understand the company, what you guys do. Give us a a brief helicopter tour of that. Yeah, sure. Paxos, our mission is to mobilize financial assets. Um, We're doing that using a variety of public and private blockchain technologies. Um, We've got a collection of products. Uh, Most notably, we recently launched a dollar-backed token called Pax, and that's our way of mobilizing the U.S. dollar into a token. And so people can... um, buy and use that token and move it like any crypto token, uh, but it's backed by a dollar. And as a New York State Trust, we can hold that and custody that dollar and um, issue tokens on um, uh, that represent uh, real ownership of that dollar. And so we're building a variety of these types of products to um, make financial assets more open and mobile. That's interesting. So, so your currency, so the PAX then is backed by the dollar. So you can't print money like a barter company would or a crypto company would. How do you then create more of your currency? Is it um, you have to raise funds or? So customers, you- are de- customers are depositing um, dollars with us to get tokens. So okay. in a bank account, um, I think we have something like $130 million worth of packs out there. That means customers have deposited $130 million and received tokens. And those tokens can be used out in the wild. And people can come and redeem those tokens for $1. So it's a dollar for dollar match. Uh, but there's an actual dollar sitting in a bank account that we are the custodian of uh, for every token that's out there. So yeah, it's not like a crypto, like a Bitcoin where it's just um, been created out of uh, code. It's a um, dollar back token. And that's, um, that's how we're mobilizing these financial assets is we have a regulatory framework and a skill set to be able to um, custody assets and then we have expertise in creating tokens out of them or digitizing them. And then uh, we enable the movement movement of those tokens. Interesting. Now, like a bank, a bank is allowed to loan against their loan reserve. So are you allowed to have more tokens than the cash that's been deposited under the Bank Act or under? No, that's a good point. We are, that's not the style of business we're in. Um, for every dollar uh, that's issued, uh, a token that's issued, there's a dollar sitting in a bank. We're not allowed to make loans. There's no, um, uh, that's not the business model. Uh, and uh, while we're a bank-like entity, 
we can't do things like give out loans. Okay. And then are you, and then are you, um, do you take a transaction fee then? Like a, every time there's a transaction, do you take like a 10th of a point or something or how do you make no, your money? Don't, um, our, you know, our broader mission and the world we envision is a world where all financial assets are digitized into these tokens. And um, a lot of the reason we created uh, this most recent product PAX is to enable the movement of the dollar, which um, payments uh, are about 80% of every financial transaction. Mm -hmm. And so having the payment like of any financial transaction mobilized in a way that's 24 seven open uh, programmable digitized, um, that's uh, an extremely powerful part of our overall mission. Uh, now we do make, um, so there's no transaction fees, there's no uh, redemption or purchase fees. Uh, we are making um, interest and come through, uh, you know, holding uh, the dollars, but um, our, uh, but the product is fairly open and, you know, um, you know, ultimately will be used for uh, powering payments. Interesting. So you're more of a payment gateway or a payment mechanism than you are trying to just make money off the transactions. Exactly. So if you imagine a world where, whether it be gold or um, other assets uh, that uh, financial assets that are out there like fixed income or securities, um, imagine all those assets are also tokenized and, um, you know, companies, products and people are transacting, uh, whether it be them trading it or uh, using it for purchasing things or using it as collateral. Uh, all those movements are being done in digital format versus awesome. um, sort of physical format that exists today. I, this is needed. I, I ran a digital currency company 20 years ago. Um, we had a company where we had Starwood Hotels, Avis Renicar, Budget Renicar, all using our digital currency instead of the US dollar. Um, oh, we created yeah. something called, it's now called ITEX, which is a publicly traded company. It's in the barter space, but I've been trying to figure out who is going to kind of go between these, these, um, these spaces and you guys are certainly capitalizing on it. How, how did you get started in your business career and what do you think took you into the COO track? Yeah, it's an interesting, uh, it's been an interesting journey because if you look at my resume or my LinkedIn profile, it's a wreck. I mean, the career path is extremely jagged and the way I've viewed my career is, um, I think the COO role is really like being a decathlete. You know, you can't, uh, you might not be the fastest sprinter or the best at the javelin or whatever, but you need to be fairly good at, at 10 events. Um, and so that's that's kind of how I thought of my career. I've thought about the COO role um, ever since I was young in high school. Um, as I heard about careers, I always just thought it was an interesting uh, position and also one that I thought personally I was suited for. Hmm. And then I went into college as a operations major was operations and technology management and really aligned with what I'm doing now. I can't say that, uh, you know, I would have uh, predicted all the twists and turns, but that, that is kind of uh, what I've been always interested in is how companies operate. That's really, uh, I'm less passionate about a specific domain or I've been in all sorts of industries. Mm-hmm. My passion really comes from operating companies. How do companies operate and how can I uh, enable the operations of a company? Um, to grow. And I love that analogy, the decathlete. Um, Harvard wrote an article probably about 15 years ago called The Misunderstood Role of the COO. Yeah. Um, They talked about seven distinct types of chief operating officers. And I think the reality is we have to really cross all of these different um, domain areas inside of a business. So 
are there a couple of business areas that you don't run? Are there any areas that you try to stay away from? Yeah, I think that's, uh, I really like that uh, Harvard, Harvard Business Review article because I do think it does characterize the different types of CEOs. And, um, you know, I've been here at Paxos. This is uh, um, the third kind of turn in this type of role. I've been here four and a half years. And it's really changed over the times. Like, I have experience doing um, business development and partnerships. I've worked at a marketing agency. I've done analytics and research. So I, I have some functional um, uh, knowledge that I've gained over my, my career. And, uh, but, you know, I really viewed that as, again, um, I spent a couple of years training for the, you know, um, the pole vault and then a, spe- a couple of years training for the, you know, 40 yard dash, whatever it may be. Sure. Um, and that's all helped in kind of how uh, I'm positioned now where I have enough knowledge. Um, and then I, my real expertise, I think, comes in pulling it all together. Um, at Paxos, the way we split up our company is um, maybe this is unique or not, but um, really Chad, our CEO and founder for all the functional groups that we have, whether it be marketing, BD, um, you know, engineering product, et cetera. uh, And we have about 10. um, Chad really uh, provides a strategic input and I help to realize that strategic input, uh, that strategic vision for that function with mm-hmm. the functional lead. And so what I spend a lot of my time doing is working with those functional leads to help thread the needle between other cross-functional groups um, and then align what they're doing towards the vision Chad's laying out for not only the company, but also that function. Yeah, you and just talk- Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, that's kind of how we're set up. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter if you report to me or Chad. Uh, we've, we really work with each of the functions the same way and so we try to set that expectation. Like people we interview are like, oh, I want to report to the CEO. CEO. It's like it, at this company, it doesn't matter. You're going to interact with us the same way. Um, and that's playing upon his strengths and his role and as well as my strengths and my role. So you, you just touched on two areas there. One, one is, is you being able to relay the vision to each of these different functional leads. And then the second was really working with the functional leads to almost remove their obstacles and align them. So Let's cover the first part first. How do you stay on the same page with Chad and Vision? And how do you get him to stay on the same page with your operational plan to make that vision come true? How do you guys stay connected? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, my the way I view my role, if I had to describe it, um, and I think the role of a lot of CEOs is to realize the CEO's vision or the founder's vision. In this case, it's the same. Um, so for me, it's about... Uh, getting Chad to push it out as well as me pulling it out. So oftentimes there's a million gears turning in Chad's head. And since I've worked with him, you know, over now seven years, um, I can pull it out. I can see the gears turning and that's like a skill set I've spent a lot of time honing is I can understand that um, gears are turning and I need to extract out of him because most people it's, it's tough to communicate maybe what's going on, but uh, pulling it out and then also having him push it out to the rest of the team. So, so what, do you think, uh, what do you think you notice there? What do you notice in him that when you see the gears, is it a, is it body language? Is it stuff he says or the way he says things? Is it? I think it's just constant dialogue. And it's also just getting to know just like, uh, you know, I've been with my wife almost 10 years and I can know um, something is, 
you know, off or I can notice um, she might be thinking deeply about something. So it is a little bit just like any relationship, getting to know the person's, um, the way they think, the way they communicate. And then also um, uh, when the right time or not the right time is to pull that out. Uh, but being in constant dialogue, that's just how we work. Um, and then uh, a lot of my role is to make sure that the rest of the company knows that as well. Mm. I've been I've been kind of playing with an issue or not an issue, but an idea recently that the COO, one of our roles is to kind of tell the emperor that they have no clothes every once in a while. You know, we're to, we're to tell that we're the ones that, that are going to speak the truth before anybody else will. How do you how do you let Chad know that either he's wrong or you think he's wrong or the team thinks he's wrong or that you don't want to do something in favor of something else? How do, how do you do that? Where do you do that? Um, yeah, I think, um, you know, one of our core values at Paxos is uh, search for the truth. And the way we define that is we want everyone to search for what's the right answer for the company, not what's the answer that you came up with or the answer that um, Chad thinks is right or, um, you know, that, uh, you know, your buddy uh, is is advocating for. So I'd say that process um for me and Chad, at least between us and uh, most of the company is a process of just surfacing evidence and uh, data um, and um, taking a beginner's mind approach to every problem. So not bringing your baggage with you um, and baggage might be, hey, this is my idea versus your idea or, hey, this is um, this is what like. Um, uh, you know, this is a bias I have coming into this problem. This is how I solved the problem at my last company. So I think that process enables uh, a open dialogue and all data, it doesn't matter who you are at the company, how uh, senior or junior you are, what your past experience was, all data is considered and decisions are made that way. So um, that's how we're trying to operate the company and that's how our dialogue is. You know, it's not about, um, so I, I talk a lot of internally about truth speaking. So mm. constantly speaking the truth. So if you have an opinion, it has to be said. Um, so there isn't some weird like, oh, should I say this or not? No, it has to be said. And in fact, to thrive in your role at this company, you have to be a truth uh, speaker. And um, uh, you, can't, you can't be silent in moments of debate or discussion. So that's a little bit how the, we don't, I, I don't feel like we get to these moments where like, I have to tell the Chad, like, Hey, like the whole team need things that no, because it should have been said in the discussion. Um, and if people can't do that, then they don't belong at the company. How do you, how do you get the truth um, and people to say what's on their mind when they're the more quiet or analytical people? How do you draw that out of people? I think there's probably better ways we could do it in terms of um, we've experimented with different formats of meetings, whether it be um, uh, setting certain expectations, for example, um, uh, having a meeting where if you're silent, you disagree, uh, or on flip-flopped, uh, if you're silent, you agree. So setting different type of meeting rules like that uh, to one, set the expectation with people that, um, uh, what the expected behavior is, uh, but we also don't have, um, uh, or sorry, let me, uh, we, we've tried other formats as well where, um, you know, people are, uh, people do individual brainstorming and then we do group brainstorming or we go around the room. We tried a lot of different things like that. I can't say we've, we've um, hit upon it, but 
one thing we do do is everyone's got to have an opinion in every meeting that you're in. If you don't have an opinion, you're not in the meeting. Bingo. I think that's actually the core underlying point is if, if you don't have an, an opinion, you shouldn't be at the meeting and we're only inviting you at the meeting because we want you to speak up and be heard. And then I think you're doing the right thing in all the different ways you're approaching it. You know, I, I think those are really great tactics to actually bring it out. I don't think there is one way. I use post-it notes at times where I get people to write down their ideas on post-it notes, but there's never one format, right? Or you get the newest person to speak first and the most senior person to speak last. Yeah. I think you guys are covering some really good areas there. I think the, the key is, yeah. as you said, if you're in the meeting, we want to hear you. Yeah, exactly. And um, there's no, we don't have meetings for the sake of uh, arbitrary lines of meeting uh, participants. For example, mm. some, some companies will have, um, hey, VPs and hire are meet once a week. The way we said it is, if there's, there, there has to be a reason for this collection of people to meet. And that, for example, we have a monthly meeting for people managers. So there's a reason everyone who's managing a person or teams should meet so we can discuss HR initiatives or whatever it may be. But there's no arbitrary like, hey, this is a leadership team. We should get together yeah. because we're all senior and we should, um, uh, you know, discuss senior things, right? So even in decisions that are being made, Oftentimes, I'm not included in those meetings because my opinion is not valuable in that meeting. So it's Chad and a product manager and a business development person. Well, and it's and, also that your, your time is more valuable working on something else for that period of time, right? You've only got yeah. three resources, people, time, and money. How do you get your employees to uh, be okay with the fact that they're not being invited to a meeting? I think that's the real delicate issue, especially yeah. in how, how do you walk through that? What do you, how do you explain it or... I think there's two parts of it. Um, one is um, setting expectations uh, at all times that uh, things are going to change. And so this is advice I got fairly recently of we need to, as a growing company, um, you know, we're about a hundred people. Uh, but when I started four and a half years ago, we were eight people. So eight people, you could, uh, everyone could be in the same meeting for marketing. Everyone can be in the same meeting for engineering, whatever it may be. But constantly setting ex expectation that um, things will change and meeting meeting participants will change, right? Mm -hmm. You get you get um, you know as as functional leads change, and someone uh, we've had to if you hire someone more senior than another person, hey, they're not in that lead role anymore. But setting that expectation, and then we do explicitly in on when we onboard new employees, um, they come in at eleven o'clock uh, on Monday. That's when we onboard new employees. And they spend 30 minutes just getting their stuff settled. But 1130, the first meeting is with me. So every new team member, I meet with them. I'm the first person in the first hour of your first day. And the message you're hearing from me is my onboarding. And one of the slides literally is you're not going to be part of every meeting. Uh, and that's the expectation we set. And um, if someone can't, uh, uh, and, you know, even pre um uh, during the interview process is, is the expectation we try to set in terms of the, our core values and how we view uh, the world. And, um, you know, generally it's been pretty good. I think we've found the type of people that thrive in that, in that type of environment and don't necessarily care about some of these things. Well, it sounds like you're setting all the cultural norms for them right at the beginning as well. Do you, exactly. you, you mentioned the, the core values. Tell me, and I, I want to ask about core values and then also some company mantras. What are your company's core values right now and how many do you have? Yeah, we have four and it's been an interesting journey on that as well. Um, our core values are search for the truth. 
Um, we have, and then the second one is shared commitment to excellence. The third is real-time candor, being direct uh, and in our communication. And the fourth is be an owner. So have ownership over outcomes and over uh, your responsibilities. Um, the, the journey in Core Value has been interesting because for about four years ago when we started, um, we did it the wrong way and we did it collaboratively. <laughs> and that might sound counterintuitive to think, well, why wouldn't you collaborate on core values? Well, the reason you don't collaborate on core values is because this is, uh, this is singularly Chad's company. He, he started this company, he's running this company, and he's building this vision, and this is his vision. So in that sense, core values has to authentically come from Chad, yep. and that's not the way we did it. And so we had all these like fluffy core values like transparency and this and that, and people came up with them, and, um, but they weren't, after a year, we were saying they aren't actually core values. Right. They are just things people came up with and we could pretend are core values. That's not to say we don't want things like transparency and whatnot, but core values have to make us uniquely different than other companies. And also they have to be things we live and die by, the operating system in which the company operates. I, right? wish, I wish that everybody listening right now could watch me kind of doing my happy dance. Like you guys have crushed your, 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 your absolutely best practices on core values. You, you know, you, too many companies first have too many, you know, they've got eight core values or 10. You can't, there's no possible way you can live by so many. I love that you're saying that they have to be Chad's and then it's really the other, everyone else has to decide if they want to support those or not. If you don't, that's cool. Go work somewhere else, right? If you do. That's, yeah. 100%. And then they're also so clear, you, you know, you did not do the single words, which are really confusing for people. You've got very yeah. short, simple phrases that are easy to understand. And then you also didn't did not cheapen your core values by trying to create some little silly acronym out of them. You know, you, <laughs> the core values they mean something. They live it. Yeah. And if you want to live with them, come on in and join us. Otherwise, don't bother. We're good. Yeah, and that that is uh, the, that is a very important point. Is it starts with our assessment process and the interview process. That's we, a great. I just want to ask about that. So, how do you assess people's um, fit with core values at the interview stage? Because that is when you should start. How do you do it? Yeah, so we have um, our interview slate uh, includes two parts. There's a functional assessment, right? Are you a good accountant? Do you know how to be a good accountant? You know, the skill sets and knowledge. Right. The second part is, do you have the attributes? Um, can, you, can you prove to me in this interview you have the attributes of these core values? And some of them are tough, so some of them we don't actually ha get a, have a great assessment for, like ownership or... Um, but for example, um, search for the truth. I, I interview every finalist candidate. Chad interviews every finalist candidate. And I do a search for the truth assessment without talking about the specifics, but I want to know that you can find the truth of a problem and you know how to ask the right questions to get to the truth. Mm. Uh, and then we have other, other um, questions that we ask where we want to understand what your real-time candor is, right? How direct can you be? How do you communicate? Um, so we have an assessment framework and people have questions that will assess if you have the, these core values or not, and they need to be demonstrated. Like you can't tell me about a time you had a tough conversation with someone. You need to show me in this conversation, um, that you can directly, um, tell me, uh, you know, give me feedback on my interview or you can be direct with me or you can show me how to search for the truth because I, I witnessed it myself in the interview. 
You guys have described it better than I used to. I used to talk about in that in the group interview and in early stage interviews looking for leadership traits. And re really what you're saying is what I was looking for. I wanted, even if you were a payroll clerk, I wanted you to be able to stand up against the VP of operations in a meeting and go, I disagree with you. This is what I think, right? Yeah. I want people to, to say what they feel and say what they think and, and do it in a respectful way. You know, not doing it in a mean way. You don't call somebody a jerk. You just I don't like what you're yeah. thinking. I like your opinion. Like a question I used to ask, um, which I was just hinting at here, I don't ask it anymore, so I'll, I'll say it here, but um, is uh, what's, your, um, what's your feedback on our, my interview here, right? So like we do an interview and I ask you, what's, my, what's your feedback? And think about that position in your end, because I think um, what you've just described is exactly the way that people feel at companies where, hey, this guy's senior or she's a VP, I can't say this, right? Think mm -hmm. of an interview situation where you're in a position where you're interviewing for, for the job, so the power dynamic is off. Can you give me real feedback on this interview when it feels like you're disincentivized to? Even mm -hmm. though we as a yeah. company totally. uh, absolutely love it. So the best answers would be people saying, hey, I thought that, um, like I hear some answers I've heard before, like, hey, you and the previous interviewer asked similar style questions, and I think you could ask different types of questions to assess different criteria. Mm, or, awesome. you know, things like that. That's a person who has the value, is showing me I have the value of real-time candor. Yeah, and they, yeah, the, com the confidence to speak up and also to do it in a respectful way, that's huge. Yeah, respectful way. There was nothing um, emotional about it, and in put on that spot in a position of seemingly lower... Um, the power dynamic being off uh, is able to do it. And now no, I think um, part of this too is like, uh, I'm not, we're not ready to declare victory on any of this stuff, by the way, you know, we, we, uh, you know, core values still is not ingrained in the way that within our organization in the way that we want, it's a work in progress for sure. But we, what's, yeah, what are you doing there? How are you trying to ingrain them deeper? I think it goes into a lot of things that um, we are in process of implementing. So for example, even just the way we do um, uh, peer reviews, right? We've had, to, we're, we're restarting our, the way we do peer reviews. We tended to do them uh, differently in the past where it looked like a lot of other companies, like how are they doing on, you know, how are they doing on their job or whatnot? But we really uh, started with creating a leveling framework where there's expectations per level for the core values. So you are expected to be at this bar for each of the core values. And it's not a grade point average. It's minimum bars that are high. And so um, part of ingraining them is to weave it into your review process. So the things we're reviewing each other on is how we're following the core values, how that person's following the core values. And it becomes just more of the way that we, uh, more of the language we use when we solve problems. Right. Our decision-making, our... Um, you know, hearing, I know it's working when I hear people say, hey, like, uh, um, what's your, like, I don't think we're searching for the truth here. I think we are biased because of blank, you know, like weaving it into our DNA. Um, you know, when you're starting a culture that is only five years old versus, mm -hmm. you know, some organizations are, have a hundred year history and it's steeped in tradition, you have to artificially stoke the fires of like, hey, this is how we do it at Paxos. And you have to create those frameworks so that in 20 years, anybody at the company would be like, hey, this is just how Paxos has been doing it for decades. You know, we're at the beginning of that. So we have to create those frameworks. So when, when you're creating the frameworks, do you have some company mantras that you guys repeat all, all the time? Um, I think it really is just the core values. It is. Um, like, and really search for the truth, I would say, is um, 
the other three really do stem from search for the truth. I would say if there was one kind of mantra, it would be that. It's just like, are we searching for the truth in this? And I catch myself uh, oftentimes not doing that, right? It's very easy to say hard to do when an, a, an idea you might be advocating is actually personally detrimental to yourself. Yeah. You know, it might be that like, hey, um, I shouldn't, so-and-so shouldn't report to me because I'm not a good enough manager for her. Like she needs someone more high powered in and skilled in um, whatever blank, right? That's a tough thing for someone to say, to raise their hand and say, hey, yeah. the best for the organization is that I reduce uh, something that maybe gives me authority or some responsibility should play, be placed elsewhere. And, um, you know, human nature is that that's not something that we're trained to do necessarily. No, that's, that's huge leadership. When someone's willing to give up one of their headcount or give up some of the responsibility for the good of the company, that really shows they're thinking at that higher level. Exactly. Tell me about, um, you mentioned the review process. I'd love to know how you grow your functional leads. I mean, the, the team that reports directly to you, how do you grow their skill set and their confidence both? Yeah, that's a tricky one. I don't think we've nailed that either. I mean, we've tried a lot of different things. Um, we're getting a lot of people from a lot of different areas, uh, different domains, different organization types. Um, and to some extent, especially when you talk about functional leads, it's a very difficult thing because you're looking for more experienced people. But what we're doing is very unique in terms of the um, size company, the stage, a growth company, a tech company that's regulated, and as well as, um, you know, right where, right in the position that we're at, which is um, starting to hit uh, real high growth curves. So there's not going to be a lot of people who have experienced exactly that in their careers. And since we are in a regulated industry, we're getting people from larger financial institutions, et cetera. So um, in terms of like, how do we, uh, how do we grow those leaders? It's really tricky. All, uh, all I could say is like, we have, um, you know, we do, we just try to create a lot of alignment. And so, for example, our product teams have a morning scrum where business teams, engineering teams, product teams uh, are all present for a short period of time where we can continue to clear out any conflicts or misinformation. And it's like we've tried a lot of different things, but we found what works for us is just increasing communication and alignment and then setting expectations that people need to speak up um, so that there never goes a 24-hour period where uh, someone doesn't know something or someone needs some piece of information to the, do their job or somebody's going in the wrong direction without them getting feedback. Interesting. So, a couple more questions for you. And I know you said you're, uh, we're running under a time constraint today for you as well. So one question I've got, you mentioned bringing in some of these people from outside, you know, bigger companies um, from the financial world. How do you bring in those bigger corporates, um, you know, more professional, I don't, I don't tripping over some words but to describe them, but how do you bring in those people into the entrepreneurial environment? Whereas you said earlier, you know, everything changes and it's expected to change. Yeah, I think the best, um, what we found is, uh, one, we need to make sure that people um, spend their time in organizations that culturally have the same or are close to our culture as possible. Now that's not always possible with like large organizations, but the reason we say that is it's super important that that alignment um, is there because imagine you went through a 20-year career in a culture that was 180 degrees opposite to us. Mm -hmm. That means you were both financially and socially 
uh, incentivized to behaviors that we don't uh, we don't uh, think are strong behaviors. Um, so, for example, um, let's just say you you spend 20 years in a very political organization, and you're really good at navigating the politics of big organizations. And when I say financially incentivized, it's because doing well in that organization means you need to uh, have those behaviors, and you get promoted. You get sure. more money. And then socially uh, incentivized because your peers are the people you work with and everyone um, feels good about your performance because you're doing the thing that that organization wants you to do. And so that's step one, I would say. Step two is in our assessment, we want to see if personally, in your personal, like who you are, uh, your core values align. So how you live your life is aligned to these core values and that's, um, that's like the best we can do to find the people that are most likely to be successful, at least at this company. I think that's the most important point with all this as well. You're truly looking for the real cultural fit of the people, not just, okay, they've got all the right skills, let's force them in. If they don't fit culturally, it doesn't really matter what their skills are. Exactly. And so, it's hugely disruptive. Yeah. Last one I've got is for yourself. I mean, you joined the company with eight employees. You're over a hundred now. You're the chief operating officer. How have you worked on your skill set over the years? What have you really um, tried to hone or, or develop in your own skills? Yeah. I mean, I think it's been an interesting journey because every year we look back and the, you know, when you look back at a point in time, uh, like now I look back to the beginning of 2018, I can't even recognize the organization, but I also can't even recognize, um, or I'm embarrassed by my actions at that, time, you know, or like mistakes I made. So I would say like, as sad as this is to say, it's been a journey of um, just making every mistake. You know, it's like, yeah. I'm sure there's smarter people than I, and uh, I'm sure that maybe there's faster learners, but man, it seems like I have to make every mistake in the book to, to, to get better at this job. And any sense of, um, you know, skill I thought I had coming in here, uh, you know, my, my, I, I just assume I'm going to be wrong, you know? So, uh, that's, that's been the journey of like, how do I improve as CEOs? Like I have, there's a couple other things I do. Like I have a CEO, uh, network of people I grab dinner with other CEOs at growth companies. Uh, but really it's just, apparently I have to make every mistake to, to grow. So that's, that's, has been my, uh, strategy here. That's super cool. No, I've been right there with you. I mean, if I look back at some of the early days when I was the COO for 1-800-GOT-JUNK, it's embarrassing to think of all the things that I was working on. And as soon as I delegated them to someone else, they, they were doing them way better than I ever was. I'm like, why, why was I even doing this? I sucked yeah. at it. Yeah, no, uh, it's the same, same feeling. I used to send out these reports about all of our franchisees every week and they were always wrong and they were sorted incorrectly and they didn't look good. And then I delegated them to this one guy since Wally and all of a sudden he started doing, I'm like, damn, those are amazing. They look great and there's no problems with them. He goes, yeah, you shouldn't have been doing it in the first place. Um, Andrew, oh, and you mentioned the, uh, the dinners with other COOs. So we started a network two years ago called the COO Alliance, where we have, it's the only network of its kind in the world for the second in command. If you guys are running dinners, I'd love to um, first get you some information on the COO Alliance, but I'd love to join you at one of your dinners sometime. Yeah, sure. That would be great. Yeah, I, I, I uh, had created my own network just because, um, you know, it's tough to get uh, people who are working kind of in the exact same stage. So it's yeah. post-series B tech COOs in New York. And there's something like 35 to 40 of them. I, I haven't done a great job keeping it regular, but we're doing once a month dinners of random collection of people. Not, awesome. you know, not a lot of people can make it. But yeah, happy to happy to hear about it. And, you know, like you said, um, to start, it's a very unique role and um, you don't hear a lot about it. So 
having peers to network with, you know, really, um, you know, I think it's a good group you've got going on there. I think it's critical for anybody in their role as well as to spend time with their peer groups outside of their business because we don't often, you know, if you go to an entrepreneur event, we don't really fit in. We want to get deeper into the details and entrepreneurs are always flying around with like, you know, cool <laughs> ideas, but they're not our tribe. Andrew Chang, the COO for Paxos. Thanks for joining us on the Second in Command podcast. All right. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Second in Command with Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe. To learn more best practices from industry-leading COOs, please visit COOalliance.com.